Hey, hey, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Nobody's Damsel. I'm your host, Ellie Coburn, and this is a cultural commentary podcast at the intersection of princess purity, political, and pop culture. I am here today with two amazing guests. Julia Paxton, who was here uh, for our second episode, is here uh, today again. I told you she would be back. Um, And Alex Schultz is joining her, who is another amazing friend of mine that I met in the same sphere on Instagram. Um, in the wild, wild world of Instagram, where we connect with all of our favorite people and can't meet any of them in real life. Um, I have uh, connected these two together because they are both very passionate about um, the conversation we're going to be having today. Uh, Not everybody knows this, but last week was National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And um, that is something that is very near and dear to both uh, Julia and Alex's hearts because they are both um, in recovery um, and, you know, they've been in recovery for several years now. And so they have lots to say and lots of wisdom to incite. This is something that is so, so important to me. It was definitely a topic that I knew that I wanted to bring to Nobody's Damsel um, from the inception of Nobody's Damsel. Before Nobody's Damsel was, you know, even named itself, I knew that I wanted uh, this to be a conversation. And so I am going to go ahead and just uh, mute myself and enjoy listening to these two lovely ladies. They have so much wisdom to impart and they both have... um, lots of experience uh, in the world of sharing not just their stories, but also the way that they think that um, the culture as a whole could do better um, in terms of eating disorders. And so they're going to chat all the things and they're going to tell it like it is when it comes to this really, really sensitive topic. Uh, Enjoy them. Julia is going to start us off. Hi, Julia. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me back again. Um, you know how much I love to talk and share my story, so this is perfect. Um, like Ellie mentioned, last week was National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. Um, this is a week that takes place at the end um, of February every year, um, and its purpose is to allow those who have suffered from eating disorders to share their story. Um, and importantly, to raise awareness for people who don't understand um, eating disorders or how prevalent they are or how multifaceted and complex an eating disorder can be. Um, so the, the week encompasses a lot of things. Um, it can be very individual. Um, and then for other organizations that raise money for eating disorders or treat eating disorders, you know, it's also a time for them to fundraise, to educate. Um, so Ellie um, introduced me and Alex actually to each other via an Instagram DM. She actually sent it and she just goes, Alex, this is Julia. Julia, this is Alex. Be friends. Um, and so I met Ellie through Instagram um, and now I've met Alex through Instagram. Um, but if you listen to my episode that I did with Ellie a while back, um, I believe I touched on having an eating disorder. Um, and for me, My eating disorder has never really looked like what the media depicts, you know, the Netflix to the bone um, or what they show you in health class in eighth grade. That was never what my eating disorder looked like. Um, It was not stereotypical in any sense of the word. Um, It was um, a huge coping mechanism to deal with the sexual abuse I faced as a child. Um, And it actually developed when 
my main coping skill, which was self-harm before I went to therapy, um, was taken away from me. And then my eating disorder kind of just took over. It was the only sense of control I had. And I'll get more into that. But why I'm really passionate about eating disorder awareness is because my story doesn't fit that mold. And I know that there are a lot of other stories like mine. Um, and I want people out there who feel like they're not sick enough or their story doesn't look like anyone else's to know that healing is still possible, possible, excuse me. And there's no shame in what your story holds. Um, and you're deserving of sharing it regardless of what it looks like. Um, so um, I'm going to pass it off to Alex um, to get started. Let her share her thoughts and ideas and what um, National Eating Disorder Awareness Week looks like for her and what it means to her. Hi. Well, again, thank you for introducing me. And again, thanks for the wonderful world of Instagram for bringing us all together. And the chatty broads originally for me <laughs> getting a hold of Ellie. Have to throw that shout out out there. Um, but again, similar to uh, Julia, my eating disorder went undiagnosed for a very long time and was definitely a coping mechanism for trauma that I went through as a child um, and then kind of um, re happened again my uh, junior year of high school. I lost my aunt and my grandma and might get into this more uh, very suddenly um, about a year and apart when I was in first and second grade. And then my junior year of high school lost both my great grandparents um, again, very close together about three months apart and right around then just started to use uh, food as a coping mechanism and I didn't even realize it and this went on until my junior of high, uh, my freshman year of college and it really switched to an eating disorder and again kept trying to get help trying to go to primary care physicians trying to go to doctors seeing like, what's going on what's wrong I can't eat food I can't keep food down and never got answers and it wasn't until finally a psychiatrist said, hey, have you ever thought of an eating disorder intake? And I said, why would I ever consider that? that? Why? And she was like, I just think that you should. And I went in expecting them to turn me away. And they wanted to put me in inpatient. And I was floored. That was the most shocked I'd ever felt in my life because it wasn't, I wasn't experiencing what I had been told eating disorders looked like. And so I think it's, I think it's so much more common than even we realize now. And that's why I'm so passionate is I, I see I see the things that I was doing in so many young women that I know today and I I just so hope that there's that TikTok meme that phases that young women or women shouldn't go through anymore and that's the big one right there is using food and as a coping mechanism and hating on our own bodies and bodies I mean it's just it's a phase that I hope that we don't have to have people go through in the future and it's not a phase and I but um so anyways that's a huge part of it. I think that. Um, sorry. Um, no, so no, just, you're okay. Yeah, no, I get um, exactly. I think our stories are very similar um, in the ways of we were struggling with eating disorders for a ch like a significant chunk a of time, and did not understand we were struggling with eating disorders. <laughs> um, and again, I think just that us two were like literally two random strangers um, from the internet that, you know, I'm all the way in Ohio. Some yeah. woman, Ellie, <laughs> connected me from, who lives in San Diego. Yeah. Um, but again, like we, we didn't meet in treatment um, or anything like that, but you know, we're, we're just these two women and yet our experiences are so similar. And I think that speaks 
largely about how other people struggle um, with eating disorders. Um, well, and so, I, I know one thing that I learned a lot about in treatment, too, is the longer that eating disorders can go undiagnosed and untreated, then the harder it is on your body and the more long-term health effects that you can have. And then the harder it is to then get into recovery and to sustain recovery that I know that when I finally got into it, it had been five years I had been using these behaviors. It had been five years that I had been going against the hunger cues and the things that my body had been telling me. And so then to turn around and try to trust my own body again after five years, I had no idea. That was a quarter of my life at that time. I was only 20. And it was, it was terrifying. Um, and so, um, sorry, yeah. I keep losing my train of thought. No, you're, you're so okay. Um, no, yeah, I have read, um, you know, statistically, someone has a greater chance at reaching recovery the sooner yes, they get intervention. Yes. And yes, exactly. That is so, that in itself is so multifaceted for like, several several reasons for one like access to treatment is a huge privilege um you know people of color people in larger bodies um queer people um you know people on the lgbtq plus spectrum it's harder for them to access treatment people that don't have insurance um and then you add in also a uh, lack of education around eating disorders, both on a societal level, um, on a personal level, even on a medical level. Um, you know, there are doctors, unfortunately, that don't understand the warning signs of an eating disorder, or they only know like anorexia and bulimia. Um, and so it's so important to understand that, but then it's also like, well, shit, like, what are we supposed to do about it? Because it's not always the fault of the individual that they're not, it, sometimes it can be on a systemic level. Um, and, and then interestingly too, so many people with eating disorders, myself included, have that narrative in their head, even when they figure it out that they have an eating disorder, um, that they're not sick enough, that they like, they have to get to a certain amount of sickness before they're allowed to get treatment which then in the long run is making and that was, it harder. That was my experience with access to treatment was it, I had insurance. I was trying to get help, but when I finally was into treatment, when I, when I was talking about before was that the first time that um, I got an intake was they wanted me to go to inpatient and my family had no education on eating disorders. I had no education on eating disorders. There was no way in my head. I was like, I'm not just going to let them, ship me off was the way that I viewed it in my, in my uneducated mind at the time. Um, and so then, and then we had this big family vacation coming up three months ahead of time. And so it was like, well, let's just put this on the back burner was basically the, the thought process that we had. And so I went ahead and did outpatient until after this family vacation. And then um, in March of 2018, started intensive outpatient. So I don't know if many people know the treatment levels, um, but typically treatment levels, uh, the highest level of treatment would be inpatient treatment. The next level of treatment down would be partial hospitalization, otherwise known as intensive day, uh, day programming. And then you have intensive outpatient programming, and then you have outpatient programming. Um, outpatient programming is typically you see a therapist and a dietitian, typically once a week both. Um, in my case, intensive outpatient programming was four days a week for three hours a day, and you did one supported meal with them. And then my experience with intensive day programming was uh, we started with, for the first two weeks you were in programming, 
you were there seven days a week for eight hours a day. And then after that, you were there five days a week for eight hours or for eight hours a day. You were there for two supported meals and two supported snacks. And then obviously with inpatient, you're there under supervision 24 seven in a, in a home. And so then when my family made this decision in my case to step down all the way from an inpatient program to outpatient all the way down to the lowest programming and then step up to IOP. When I was in this program, I was doing everything I could, but, uh, my, my, um, the way that I would use symptoms was that I would typically not eat up until about five o'clock, seven o'clock in the after in the afternoon, either I would just get so ravenous that I would break down or it would just be finally that time of night. I would finally be able to stomach food. Um, typically I think it was just, or my dietitian didn't like this. Typically I would smoke a little weed and then maybe then I could stomach food. Um, no, it's so funny you mentioned that because me and one of my friends who's also in recovery, like we talk about how we're like, <laughs> honestly, like for people that need to restore weight or like start eating again, like who struggle with a yeah. eating disorder, if we let them all get high and then go into like a meal, I feel like it'd be significantly easier. My friend and I have talked about that we want to open a treatment facility that's THC friendly and CBD friendly for the exact same weekend. Just have but, a little yeah, bit of I love her to death. I love my dietitian to death, but she would always look at me in the eyes and she goes, would, would you think it's maybe because you had just smoked? Well, no, Natalie, I wanted to eat the dang cookies anyway. <laughs> like, I was going to eat the right. cookies whether or not there was weed involved or not. Like, I just wanted the cookies. <laughs> and so, um, and so, yeah, I would, I would eat at night. And so, obviously, when my intensive, when my intensive outpatient programming is from four to seven o'clock at night, if I don't eat all day, of course, I can sit here and perform for you and eat dinner. I'm used to doing that. That's easy for me. But then when I started to not gain weight and my insurance starts looking at everything and they say, well, why is she in eating disorder treatment? She doesn't need eating disorder treatment. She's too weight stable. And my, my dietitian and my therapist and we did, uh, we fought and we fought and we fought to keep me in programming. And I ended up only staying in intensive outpatient for a month because my, my uh, insurance program or insurance uh, policy said one day you're done. They came back. I, I showed up expecting to go back the next day. And they said, we're sorry, but this is going to be your last day here. And I remember that night, my therapist, um, Mary, God bless Mary, love her to death. And um, she wouldn't let me leave that night until I either called my mom or I called Birch Street, which is a crisis center in town, because I was so distraught. And yeah. I it broke me that I was trying to get help so hard and then to be told no. And... I went into what I felt like was a pseudo recovery for a long time. And I think that that's another huge topic too, is that there's a lot of people that whether or not it's to their any fault of their own or not, that there is a, like, I know many of my friends kind of reach a pseudo recovery and either they can't reach treatment anymore or they've exhausted the treatment like resources that they have. And they're at this place where they, they could live and they seem recovered and and they can they're better than they were, but it's it's not full recovery. And I and I lived in that phase. I don't know if you have experience with that, Julia. Yeah. Um, also, too, like I think circling back to you talking about um, insurance, um, that's something you see all the freaking time with eating disorders. Um, 
like insurance does not want to cover eating disorders. Like they really don't. They will like fight tooth and nail to kick people out of treatment to refuse covering services. Like unless you are most, medically dying, <laughs> like most eating disorders or most insurance plans do not cover dietitian services anywhere, regardless of anything. Yeah, mine didn't cover outpatient services even. Like they didn't see needing a dietitian as something that was like necessary so they're like yeah yep. no we're not no exactly we're not yeah, most insurance programs do not see a dietitian necessary for eating disorder treatment even though a dietitian is required for eating disorder treatment right and so i think that too like you know where people are posting you know for like National Eating Disorder Awareness Week, whatever, like get help now, like you don't need to wait to be sicker. And like, those are all great. And I 100% agree, but it's been also so hard when insurance is telling you the exact opposite of like, actually, like you're not sick enough for us to cover you. Um, so then it's like, what are you supposed to do? Like you can, you can try to recover with the resources that you do have where you're at or you know for some people that they're not at a place where they can do that and so then they do just they get thicker and thicker um but yeah my and I do have some numbers oh amazing oh I have numbers on some appointment costs so for the record for anybody who doesn't know what kind of these services would cost um uh eating disorder dietitian um, intake is four hundred and fifty-two dollars. Um, a the Emily program intake that I had was three hundred and fifteen dollars, and then each billed dietitian appointment, and this is if you pay them ahead of time, and I believe you can get a discount on them. They all come in at a hundred dollars, and then each therapy session is one hundred and ninety-five dollars. Is what I saw on my bill through insurance, and that is every single week you go and you see them. And so it's, it's something that I would have never been able to afford it had I not had insurance. I mean, I can't imagine somebody having to pay that out of pocket and then having these things put on Instagram of just get help. Don't wait, get help now. And it's like, well, a lot of people would if, if they could, and if they had access to it and if they financially were able to, and at the same time, a lot of people don't, and it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> In the United States, um, medical care, um, mental health care, all of these things are like a luxury or you have to earn it. Um, it's not something that is given. And that's that's a whole nother rabbit hole about oh, um, yeah. our country and my frustration with it. But yeah, it's so it's so ridiculous. And, you know, something so I haven't I haven't personally experienced any higher level of care with eating disorder treatment. Um, I did for suicidal ideation and anxiety and depression. Um, but for my eating disorder, it was, you know, it was taking what I had learned um, in me general mental health treatment and trying to apply it to my eating disorder. Um, because again, I live in an area, our resources are getting better, but there wasn't a ton of resources. Um, and I also didn't even know that things like residential or anything like that were like existed. Um, and so, you know, it was just like, I would use the PHP and IOP I was in for anxiety and depression. I'd take those coping skills and try to apply them to my eating disorder. Um, I eventually did see 
um, an outpatient dietitian um, that I was able to with the help of my parents paying for it. Um, and this place was a nonprofit, so they had a lot of like discounted and scholarships and whatever to help cover. Um, but I've heard from people who have been to treatment a lot of times um, frustrations with what they've referred to as like the revolving door of treatment, where unfortunately, like it seems like some treatment centers are kind of just using this to make profit. And I'm, that doesn't mean like the therapists, the dietitians. I don't mean anyone on this micro level. I'm talking about macro level, the heads of these corporations and whatever. Um, I, I have heard of that happening. And I do have some experience with um, the revolving door and not as much as uh, facilities popping up and being around. But as far as like how quickly they kind of want to move you through these phases of treatment and then how quickly they kind of want to get you out once you are in outpatient. Um, they, you typically go into any of these levels of, of care with kind of a timeline of how many weeks you're going to be there and then how many weeks they expect it to last. And then it's kind of like once you've hit that week mark, even if you don't necessarily or you're not necessarily ready to move down levels, they're kind of pushing you down to make room for other people to come in. Um, and I know in my experience, when I was kind of in a pseudo recovery between my two stints of treatment, um, I was doing outpatient and would have liked to continue outpatient longer and actually think that it would have been better for my health in the long term. Um, but around July of that year, they ended up just kind of saying like, hey, we don't really think that we can help you anymore. Basically, they're kind of like, we think that we've kind of done everything that we can. And we have other people that are on a waiting list and we need to make room for them. And so we would we would like you to like continue this treatment in another like facility, basically. Um, and it's it's incredibly discouraging because then um, you're right. You, you go back and then you go back at either a higher level of care or you keep going back again and again. And I have many friends of mine that have been stuck in that cycle of going through the levels being pushed through too quickly and then ending up right back where they were again and it's not like when you go back to treatment a second or a third time that staff is very acknowledging of that um, or nor does like the programming itself necessarily build upon it from like the last time that you were there um, they kind of have these programs and they're kind of pre-written out for kind of just like the masses like this mass curriculum and it's kind of like a one-size-fits-all type treatment and eating disorders aren't one-size-fits-all disorders by any means and and so it was incredibly frustrating to kind of be going through the second time and be learning things and doing some of the same worksheets that I had done the first time and and sometimes it's it's good and you need to do those things again but other times I could have been using that time that I was paying anywhere from hundreds to thousand dollars a day for doing something more valuable for my treatment. Um, I don't know if you have any experience in kind of going through the same motions of treatment multiple different times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first dietitian I saw outpatient with through um, a treatment center. So like she didn't have her own private practice. So it was like all of like the outpatient materials were like in line with what the treatment center believed, you know, like it was a very specific and very strict 
meal plan and like they had their own very specific idea of what recovery looks like. Um, and that, it didn't work for me. I, I tried um, to make it work and it was more of like going through the motions and it wasn't something that was sustainable. Um, and so when I, you know, discharged from her, it was only a couple months later that I, I ended up relapsing. Um, and I started seeing this dietitian who, you know, helped get me to where I am today. And I think what was so significant about that was, um, for one, she didn't take insurance, um, which luckily with the help of my parents, we were able to do. Um, and why I say that is significant is because that means she didn't care if someone had a diagnosis or not. Like she didn't care if you were able to fit into a certain label because she didn't have to report it to insurance. Um, the only way insurance covers things, if they are going to cover um, an eating disorder is with a diagnosis. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of her framework was that like everyone deserves help with where they are and their relationship with food, regardless of what it looks like. Um, mm -hmm. And she really just gave me a lot more freedom and, you know, let me make mistakes and let me decide what I wanted my recovery to look like. So there wasn't anyone anymore telling me what my recovery was supposed to look like. You know, she gave me the room to decide what I wanted it to look like. And I think that was incredibly impactful on building a more sustainable recovery for me. I definitely could see that being a huge aspect of helping your recovery because I know in my experience, my relationship with dietitians were some of the most rigid forms of relationships I had in treatment. And the things that they would ask from me and the expectations that I had, I always felt like were so much higher and a little bit less attainable than some of the other staff members or even like my therapist would have of me. Um, and uh, I mean, I don't know what your experience was with how they had you track food, um, but I know with the program that I was in at the Emily program, they do tallies. Um, which learning that program, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. And it's, it's very, it can be very rigid at some points. And um, then like the, the meal plans that your dietitian's giving you and the expectations that they have. And there was a lot of times that I felt like what I was being expected to eat at certain stints of treatment was, was like, I, it was something that I, I couldn't even imagine, like going from eating what I had been eating to going to what they were expecting me to I wish I could have voiced more. I mean, when I was in a partial hospitalization, I was having intense refeeding issues um, and issues with uh, gastroparesis and all kinds of health issues. And when I was in treatment during these days, they were continuously expecting me to eat the same amount of food in the meal plan. And I kept telling them, I'm like, I'm, I physically can't. Like my, my body is physically fighting against me trying to do this. And they were like, well, if you can't, if you can't meet these guidelines that we're, we've set for you, then you need to go home because you're using symptoms. And I, if I had had a little bit more voice and just saying, and like, please trust me, like I've been through this before. I know lying to treatment is not what's going to help me at all. I'm just trying to tell you that physically my body is not ready for what you're asking of it. Um, and so I can imagine, and I don't know what your experience was with your dietitian, but having just somebody that kind of heard you out 
and trusted you, would it, well, that would have been ch- like recovery or treatment changing for me because I just I never felt right. trusted by my treatment team. Right. Yeah. So my old dietitian, a huge block we had where it's like if I tried to communicate something against the meal plan that I didn't like, like she was always like, oh, that's just your eating disorder that's talking or like whatever. So there, there wasn't a lot of trust. And so it was like, I don't know, how was I supposed to trust myself? And it's funny you talked about like the meal planning too, because the way this program did it was like by macros, by we had to have a certain amount of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats for okay. each snack and each meal. And it like just went almost like the opposite way for me. So like I went from like restricting food to then becoming very obsessive with getting like the perfect amount for my meal plan, like to the point where like it did not feel healthy. And whenever I would try to communicate that, it like I would just I wasn't heard. Where like it was like it doesn't do you feel healthy for me? Oh no, go ahead. You also struggle with perfectionism. Oh yeah. Okay. Big time. (laughs) What you're talking about is what exactly I did time in treatment was I went in and I went in with a little bit of a different um, headspace, but I definitely had concerns of what you're talking about happening is having it become almost this obsessive then relationship to the meal plan itself, not just an obsessive relationship with food. Now, what I ended up doing was my second stint in treatment, I decided that I needed to look at my, how I was using not eating and how I was using the feeling of being hungry and being empty was the same way that an addict was using a drug and that I was addicted to that feeling. And so then in my brain, when I went into treatment the second time, the way I had to look at it was if I eat any less than what was expected of me, that was me using, that was me using symptoms. That was me using my drug. I went in with a 100% minimum. If I wanted to eat anything over that, I could, but I went in with a 100% minimum at at the at the end of the day, that was what I had to meet. But then it's hard when my dietitian is expecting more of me than what I was physically possible of doing. But I actually um, told one of my eating disorder therapy uh, therapists once that I told them I said, "Well, you know, I'm just digging myself out of this the same hole that with this. I'm just digging myself out of this hole with the same shovel that I dug myself in with, and the shovel is called perfectionism." Mm. Yeah. And my therapist oh, yeah, that's so good. You really think that that's a good idea? And I'm like, well, it's working. So I don't know. I'm just going to keep going with it. Um, yes. No, I had those exact same thoughts of like, if I'm not doing this 100% perfect, then I'm failing or I'm relapsing yeah. or I'm exactly. using a behavior. I mean, like it got to a point where my mom bought the wrong type of juice that I wanted for a snack. And it was two grams off from the minimum for my snack exchange. And I literally sat on the kitchen floor and started sobbing. Like I was just like, and I just remember like thinking like, if this is what recovery looks like, like, I don't want this. I don't want my, the rest of my life to be spent obsessing over a meal plan. Like Mm -hmm. I want to not even be on a meal plan. Um, and even you know, being able to then see that other dietitian and for her to trust me, allow me to trust in myself yep. and my ability to eventually get there. Yeah. I mean, even 
weeks, months, up until even now, if I look at a plate of my food, I count the tallies. And so tallies are kind of what you were talking about, same with macros. Um, we did grain tallies, meat tallies, or protein tallies, grain tallies, um, dessert tallies, dairy tallies, those kinds of things. And it took me forever to get out of the mindset of, well, breakfast has to have this, and a lunch has to have this, and a dinner has to have this, and a snack can't just be one tally. It can't just be one category of tallies. It has to be multiple. And right get out of that mindset to be more intuitive of like, you know what, maybe I just want a big bowl of fruit for my snack today. Maybe I don't want to have a protein or a dairy tally and I can do that. This morning I had a therapy appointment with my, with my actual therapist. And I was like, yeah, I didn't really feel in the mood or have time to eat anything, make anything for breakfast. And I, the only thing that I really wanted was ice cream and the eating disorder voice popped in my head was like, well, you can't have, you can't have ice cream for breakfast. And I, and I thought back to myself and I was like, well, why the hell can I not? I'm a fucking grown adult. I'm going to have ice cream for breakfast. <laughs> so I got myself right. a ice cream and I went to therapy. <laughs> right. Yes. And I remember, you know, my, my, the, my second dietitian um, who really met me where I was at, like her saying, like, my goal is not to get you to eat perfectly. I want yep. to get you to eat like a normal human being. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Oh, <laughs> and she was like, normal, like normal people in the sense of like people who don't have eating disorders are not eating perfectly. They're not eating everything that would be on a meal plan if I created a meal plan for them. And that's okay. Um, and I remember feeling like so comforted by that, but then also like terrified because I was like, oh, oh, like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was just like, Oh, okay. Like we're not, she's not expecting perfection. She's not expecting this rigid meal plan. And yeah, exactly. That's how sometimes still, like I can look at anyone's like plate of food and I can like tell what like the exchanges would be for like my meal plan. Like my brain goes into that auto sometimes where I can just like, yep, that's that many carbs. That's that many proteins. That's that many fats. Like it, like our, Yeah. My brain has like going back to trust. for a while. Oh, sorry. I don't know about going back to trust, but um, actually, I was talking to my my um, actual just general therapist about this this morning. Um, we've kind of been going over. We've actually been going over the book, "The Body Keeps the Score," in our appointments, um, and so that's been really yes. fun. Something came up today about treatment, and we were talking about it. And I just said, "Well, you know, it's really hard to be in a place where nobody trusts you." And everybody thinks that you're out to use symptoms and you're out to be sneaky. And um, we're actually talking about um, like kind of being able to have communication with people that you're in treatment with, whether it's eating disorder treatment, addiction treatment, uh, other mental health treatment. Um, And that in other realms of uh, mental health treatment, they tend to encourage you to have communication and to make community with your with your fellow uh, members of treatment. However, what I found with eating disorder treatment is that's almost not encouraged. And I almost felt like they felt like we were all just going to go like run off and use symptoms together. <laughs> and like, right, right. like symptom using club and that we were always trying to use symptoms and we were always trying to be sneaky and like, it was frustrating. And I told her, I go, you're basically guilty until you're proven innocent and I don't mm-hmm. think that, that should be how it is. And I have a lot of problems. No, there's, right. That, you know, 
there's just like such a loss of autonomy in treatment in general. Um, you know, having, especially like when I had to go inpatient a couple of times for suicidal ideation, you know, like you literally have everything taken from you. Um, and you're just like at the mercy of these treatment providers, you know, you're in this place until they say like, you're okay enough to not be in this place. Um, so there's already this sense of a loss of autonomy, which in itself is scary. Even when you have, even if you're at like the best place with the best providers, and then you throw in providers that are assuming things about you or not trusting you or like just essentially not listening to you. They just see you as this diagnosis or this stereotype. Um, yeah. And it can be so incredibly harmful. Like, don't get me wrong. Treatment has absolutely saved my life and I've never regretted um, seeking the help that I sought, but it was at times traumatizing. There were places I were at that were traumatic. And I think a lot of the times people don't want to talk about how treatment can be harmful um, because it doesn't have to be either or my, you know, my life was saved. And at some places, like there was some trauma involved and, and I know that's happened for other people because again, even at a fantastic place, that loss of autonomy is scary and it's life altering. Um, and admitting that doesn't mean that you're not grateful or it doesn't mean you aren't glad that you got healing. It's just the reality of what it was. Yeah. I brought this up to my, my general therapist, Pam, God, God, I love Pam. And um, I brought up to her kind of out of the blue one day that the trauma that I experienced um, in treatment and, and she was kind of taken off guard. She was like, you, you were traumatized in treatment. I was like, yeah. Um, And actually I I still struggle with um, some of the issues that this brought up, but I, I was talking about some of the gastrointestinal issues that I had from um, how quickly I refed. Um, And I mean, and refeeding is, is easily hands down one of the hardest things that I think any human could ever go through. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I was like hot and cold sweats. You wake up in a puddle of your own sweat all the time. You can't think straight. I was getting, um, I actually started getting daily headaches and migraines all day long. That was actually, I believe triggered by refeeding, but was actually from a car accident I had been in back in December of, um, 2018 and I mean, you're, you're shaking, you, your hunger signals are off the chart. Like you have no hunger signals and you're being told to eat. And I mean, the, the pay, I mean, it's just, it's a terrible way to be. And so I was already going through refeeding. And then I started dealing with gastroparesis, which is the delayed emptying of your stomach. Um, because basically my body wasn't used to having food put into it before, before the evening. And so then my body didn't know what to do with the food I was putting in it before five o'clock at night. And I actually remember driving home from treatment many days and feeling that emptying release of my stomach finally. And they had had me seeing doctors and doctors on staff and going to urgent care and all these things. But what was happening was um, at lunch specifically, I believe, because that was the last meal that we'd have there. I was getting to a point where I was so full that I, I couldn't keep food down anymore. And although, um, so my, my specific diagnosis is atypical anorexia, um, because I never reached a low enough weight, um, to technically Mm -hmm. diagnose with anorexia, which I know that's a whole other thing we want to get into as far as weight stigma and weight 
Lyme diagnosis and weight stigma in the DSM-5. Um, but so I, I, and so, but for me, purging was never really an issue. Um, the only issues I struggled with purging was if I had just gone for eating for so long, um, gone without eating for so long, I have severe acid reflux. Um, but I never purposefully would ever purge food. And so then when I was getting sick from um, not being able to stomach any more food, they were sending me home. I was getting sent home before the end of the day of treatment because they were telling me that I was mm. using symptoms. And I kept telling them that this was never my symptom, that I'm sick. Something's right. physically wrong with me. And I was continuously told and looked in the eyes, no, this is your ed. And I had treatment coordinators that I trusted with all of my everything. I mean, at that point, I was there five, seven days a week. And I had them look at me in the eyes and say, well, you're just letting your ed win, aren't you? And um, now, I mean, this past year, I've gone through $10,000 plus of gastrointestinal um, experimental imaging because I'm still dealing with these issues because these issues weren't my mm-hmm. And so what was happening was right. what I was finding was I was getting sent home. And then the days that I would go back the next day, these these beha- like this whatever was happening, because then my anxiety would be so much worse, which would then make my nausea so much worse, but then which would then make the gastroparesis so much worse that it was happening then more the days that I would go back. Um, And so then kind of where this comes from is I found a loophole that if whatever I was regurgitating never left my body, I could stay. And it it was absolutely traumatic. And the fact that treatment, because they did not believe me because I was not using symptoms for weeks. I mean, it sounds terrible, but basically ended up swallowing my own vomit. And it's, it's, and I I talk about it now because I want people to know that if you're experiencing this, it's not your eating disorder. Like if you're going through feeding and you have physical things going on with your body, like you are intuitive enough to know that it's not. And I still have plans once I finally um, will probably be diagnosed with an irritable, irritable bowel syndrome, plan to go back to this treatment coordinator and tell her and say, hey, what happened here wasn't okay. And these are the repercussions that I'm now still dealing with. And these are the diagnosis that I now have. They're completely not eating disorder related. And you can't let this continue to happen to clients. Right. I mean, yeah, trust yeah. In needs to be there and it's just not. Right. Yeah. And I think you touched on a really important part of you know, letting people know if you have this intuition, like you're allowed to trust it. Cause I think a lot of times for people who like maybe have never been to therapy before, they've never been to treatment before, they don't know what to expect. They think that they have to believe everything a treatment provider is telling them. Cause this is someone who is a professional, they're a specialist, um, you know, they're in power above you that, you know, you have to you have to listen to what they're saying or you're not allowed to advocate for yourself. Um, and that's, that's just not true. Um, you know, I, for me, it wasn't physical symptoms, but you know, I also have a diagnosis of PTSD, um, and anxiety and depression and all three of those things impacted my appetite a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, if I'm having a bad PTSD day and I'm, you know, dissociative and not really connected with what is going on with my body. And I'm not reminding myself 
to eat, I'm going to accidentally forget to eat because I am not feeling my hunger cues at all because I'm dissociated. Or, you know, if I'm, if I'm in a depressive episode, like the thought of making a meal can be so exhausting. The thought of like thinking about what to eat and actually preparing it and cleaning up the mess, all of these things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, anxiety um, is a, will make your appetite go away. It can just make it vanish. And there were, you know, my old dietitian like didn't really buy that. Like, you know, she was like telling me, no, that's still just, that's your eating disorder. Like that's your eating disorder. And I was like, no, like this is something obviously that yes, needs to be addressed. Like I need to be addressing these things in therapy because, you know, that's not a way I want to live. I don't want to feel like this. And I need to figure out ways to fuel myself when, you know, I'm having an episode, but like, I wasn't intentionally restricting, um, but it was like, oh, well, you're here for an eating disorder. So clearly that's what you were doing. Um, yeah. I think and, you know, you, finding. When you so end up in this sort of treatment, then all of a sudden that becomes the only thing that matters. And that becomes right. the whole cause of everything that you're dealing with. And I'm the same way. I have. ADHD, PTSD, anxiety, depression, panic disorder. I mean, the whole, the whole nine yards, we talked about that before. And I'm sure you've yeah. experienced too, that they, they kind of all go down the, like, they all kind of all run down the road holding hand in hand. Like they all play with each other and they all exacerbate each other. Oh, yeah. It's like when my, when my anxiety is really bad, my eating disorder is going to be really bad. But when I'm, when I'm acting upon eating disorder symptoms, then that also can make other things even worse. I mean, when I'm acting upon eating disorder symptoms and I'm hungry, then my ADHD gets even worse. And so it's like, or my ADHD can cause me to forget to eat. And so it's like, they all just kind mm-hmm. of perfect storm. And, but that's right. why eating disorder shouldn't just be the sole focus is because it's not just the one no. thing anymore. Right. And I remember being so like bewildered almost when I like kind of like understood or discovered this whole like eating disorder world so to speak of like you know like residential centers inpatient centers PHPs IOPs all of these things because in the past I had always been treated at general mental health facilities where like you know I'd be in a PHP for my depression and anxiety but I was also there with people who had personality disorders and schizophrenia and bipolar and all of these things and, you know we were all in groups together all learning mm-hmm. how to cope and how to heal and yet but then eating disorders were so separate like yep. they were their own entity almost like and not looking at how all of these things can coincide together and you know I even remember the place where I the treatment center where I went for my first dietitian like they just like kind of assumed if you're feeling depressed, oh, like that'll get better once you're like fueling yourself properly. Yeah. When it's like, in reality, no, I've actually had major depressive disorder since I was 12 before my eating disorder even started. Like, Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I ended up actually then getting diagnosed with treatment resistant depression and I had to um, get TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation um, for my depression. Um, so it was like very much, no, this is its own real issue that, um, you know, is intertwined with my eating disorder in the way of sometimes it's harder to eat because I feel so depressed, but just eating more didn't cure my depression, which like, don't get me wrong. Like when you're not fueling yourself, it very much negatively impacts your mental health. It makes you feel like shit 
physically oh, and I mentally. Mean, we can um, go. So um, I do understand uh, that. Right. About but, <laughs> Yeah. But to like tell a patient that like their eating disorder is their only problem, that's not setting them up for success and that's not no. making recovery sustainable because once they leave that fear of, you know, having therapeutic support all the time, you know, having therapeutic support when you're eating meals, having your eating disorder be the sole focus, and then you go back out into the real world, and all of these issues are still there. Um, And, you know, for me, actually, like, kind of putting my eating disorder on the back burner, in a sense, and really diving into trauma therapy in turn actually helped me recover from my eating disorder significantly because um, like I said way back when um you know my eating disorder was a huge coping mechanism for my trauma um because you know my trauma made my body feel incredibly unsafe it felt really unsafe to ever feel connected to my body and my body felt like something that should be punished and so you know, restricting my food, my food intake, purging, all of these things, it just like it checked all the boxes for what I felt like I needed of, you know, avoiding my body, not feeling safe in my body, punishing my body. Um, and, you know, I couldn't CBT or DBT my way out of my trauma. Um, or, you know, also growing up in a, as a queer woman in a very small homophobic town, also really contributed to using eating disorder behaviors. Um, shame, the feeling of shame was a, is a huge trigger for my eating disorder. And that coincides with both, you know, homophobia, internalized homophobia, and my trauma. And, you know, these are personal and systematic issues that, you know, I couldn't just fill a cognitive behavioral therapy sheet about and call it a day and make everything okay. So, you know, I really had to look at the bigger picture and, you know, kind of dig deeper into everything. And then it really, it made my eating disorder recovery a lot more sustainable. Yeah. I think a lot of what you were talking about, how like when you leave eating disorder treatment or in my, in my experience, when I left eating disorder treatment, I mean, everything else is still there everything else that you were diagnosed with that you were struggling with before you went to treatment or even that you're struggling with in treatment, it still exists. And that eating disorder is still probably your brain's number one chosen coping mechanism. And like, even with how much work you had just put in for NICU metaphorically for anybody, like the work that had just been put in for weeks, months, it's all of a sudden, like all of these other things are still going on. And all it could take is one big life event or one big life change or one life alter. And all of a sudden you need a coping mechanism again. I mean, you're right back at it. I know that that was my experience. I had been in pseudo recovery Mm -hmm. for both treatments and I got in a car accident and I went right back to it and even harder than I had before because I had no other idea of how to deal with what I was going through but that eating disorder was always right there. It's like just, it's almost like a, the world's worst security blanket. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, like I'll reference a lot of the times, you know, with both my self-harm and my eating disorder, it was a thing that 
yes was slowly killing me and yes it was harming me but it was what was keeping me alive um you know I think if I didn't use those coping mechanisms I would not be here today you know I used those because that's that was all I had available to me at the time with my knowledge and the support I had um and so you know I do believe that it kept me alive because they are they're coping mechanisms yes I mean, they're completely, they're so, so complex and they look different for every single person. But I mean, I can guarantee you, if you talk to anyone who has struggled with an eating disorder, they're going to tell you that it wasn't just about the food and it wasn't just about their body. There was a lot more going into it, whether, you know, that's another mental health um, disorder, like OCD and eating disorders can go really hand in hand, PTSD and eating disorders go really hand in hand, um, you know, uh perfectionism I I know that there's a lot of I mean just co-occurring illnesses but I mean even just the senses of we had talked about with perfectionism that I I can't say that I there wasn't a person that I really met in treatment that didn't also struggle with perfectionism or senses Mm -hmm. of control and so it's even just tendencies of people's personalities that can kind of right you know black and white thinking that's another huge one that I've seen with a lot of people who have had eating disorders. Mm-hmm. But co-occurring yeah, yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's just, there is, there's so much that goes at hand. And if we're, if we're not as a whole, as treatment providers, um, as a society, as supporting people with eating disorders, as someone living with an eating disorder, if we're not looking at what is going on that's deeper that's contributing to the food and the body image or the weight or whatever you know we're going to miss a lot and we're we're probably going to end up back where we started in terms of our eating disorder absolutely and then i know we had touched on earlier um just about like kind of the diagnosis of eating disorders and how weight focused they are and how body focused they are. And um, like I talked about with my experience with diet being diagnosed with atypical anorexia. Um, but I also know that um, like OSFED had been thrown around and I know for a fact that I had orthorexic tendencies at some periods of time too. And so I don't know what your experience was being diagnosed with OSFED, but I know that that's kind of one of the most unknown about eating disorders that I think is one that needs to be talked about even more. Yeah, yeah. So um, for people who are listening that like aren't really aware of like eating disorder diagnoses and all that. So there there are five in the DSM. Oh, also, if there are people listening who don't know what the DSM is, it's this big giant book of all mental health disorders someone could possibly have that doctors, psychiatrists, therapists use to diagnose people. Um, And with eating disorders, there's anorexia, which um, I know Alex, you want to talk on this too. Has it's a body image restrictive intake, and another criteria is um, an abnormally low body weight. And then there's bulimia, which is binging and purging. Um, and then there's also there's two others that I I won't really go into. Um, there's you know binge eating disorder um, and ARFED, avoided restrictive intake disorder. But then there's OSFED, which is kind of this catch-all diagnosis which stands for otherwise specified feeding and eating disorder and it's for people that have a significant eating disorder it's impacting their life but it doesn't fit 
the strict criteria of another eating disorder. Um, and some common ones are atypical anorexia, there's purging disorder, um, there's atypical bulimia. Um, and for me, I was restricting my intake, not to lose weight, but to not gain weight. I had become almost in an obsessive compulsive way, hyper fixated on a certain amount of weight I thought I was supposed to weigh. Um, you know, and so that I was constantly obsessed with what I was eating. I was obsessively weighing myself. I was obsessively calculating my BMI. I was making sure, you know, I didn't gain weight. Um, but because I was never underweight to everyone else, even medical professionals, I was completely healthy and there was nothing going on. Um, and I think and you know, is that we so idolize thinness. And thin mm -hmm. bodies and that, oh, somebody's skinny, so they must be healthy. I mean, even people who are underweight are idolized right. for their bodies that they have and how they can maintain them. And I think a lot of people don't understand that being five pounds underweight is far more detrimental to your health than being 50 pounds overweight. Um, yep. And so I think that a lot of these this what we're talking about. I mean, kind of like how I, I mean, I also was maintained a healthy, slightly above an underweight BMI and was told, oh, no, you're healthy. You're a great, healthy weight. You've got nothing right. to worry about yeah. because thinness is so idolized. And it's just, you're thin, so you yeah. have to be healthy. When I was actively struggling with an eating disorder before I had told anyone about it, my primary care physician at a checkup told me, Oh, you have a perfect BMI. Um, when like I was not healthy at all, and my um, psychiatrist in high school told me, um, "Oh, we have a great eating disorder program. If things ever get worse for you, um, even though there were red flags with my growth charts that he had pointed out that he had seen, um, and I had slightly discussed." you know, distress around my weight and my body image and food, but he didn't dig deeper um, because, you know, I think for one there, he just had a lack of awareness of eating disorders. He wasn't an eating disorder specialist. Um, and also because, you know, my weight never reached that red flag mark. Um, I and think so I kind of really that and ran with it. Oh, I think no, you had an important thing of that. Everybody gets, everybody doesn't want to touch eating disorders. From what I've seen is mm -hmm. that other mental health specialists that don't have any, tr any um, experience with eating disorders don't want anything to do with it. And kind of your experience with him is he kind of just was like, you know what, we have this available if it gets worse, but I, it's not really something that I like, it, that's kind of the, the gist that I'm getting from you is he was like, we have this if you want it, but I don't, I'm not really going to do anything. And I've had right. that experience with doctors too, or, or other therapists where it's like, I would like to talk about something about my eating disorder, but I just don't feel like it's the place or the time. And I don't think that that should have to be a, a problem somebody facing eating disorder should deal with. Right, right. Where he kind of was, he was putting the responsibility to be able to vocalize and ask for help on my 17 year old self. Exactly. Um, and, you know, it, that led to my eating disorder progressing for a couple more years because, you know, like I talked about earlier, my eating disorder developed 
when my means of self-harm was taken away. And, you know, I was still at this crisis point, you know, I hadn't found any meds that worked. I was, I was miserable. I was suicidal. Um, and I was just like, I can't lose another coping mechanism. And so, you know, my little disordered brain was like, oh, from what he just said, I can keep doing what I'm doing and no one's going to notice. No one's going to take this away from me. Um, and it worked in, until it didn't. Um, it actually led from my behaviors. It led to me developing um, stomach ulcers. You know, it led to a bleeding stomach. And ironically, that kickstarted my recovery, not in the way of I had some realization of like, oh, this is seriously harming me, but in the way of like, it was too fucking painful when I had open sores in my stomach to not eat because then that meant there was stomach acid just on yeah. these open sores and it was too painful. And I think starting to eat more regularly again, because I had no other choice, kickstarted more of a recovery mindset in me. I think getting past that energy deficit, I was able to think a little more clearly and realize like, oh shit, this is something I should probably take care of. Um, getting, but I wish it, getting through the yeah, I wish it hadn't, mode is a life-changing yeah. experience. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's like, I wish it hadn't gotten to that point. You know, I wish someone had intervened, someone had stepped in, but again, you know, it is what it is. And it, at the end of the day, it helps get me to where I am today. But it makes me sad to look back on now at, you know, my 16, 17, 18 year old self who, you know, was using behaviors and getting away with it because there was a lack of resources. People were uneducated. People were kind of afraid to touch the topic of an eating disorder. Um, yeah. And I, it makes me sad and I wish that I had had help. Um, and I think that's, I think that's sadly a very common experience with a lot of people of their behaviors going unnoticed or for people um, living in fat bodies, their behaviors are praised even or seen mm -hmm. as healthy um, and they, they don't get that intervention and they have to really fight and advocate for themselves in order to find healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you were talking about earlier with being in group. Um, and being in groups with multiple people with um, other personality disorders or anxiety or depression or people that were dealing with trauma. And um, I was in a DBT group at one point, um, kind of in between my two stints of treatment and on and off through multiple different periods of time where I was in the group with people who were struggling with di different diagnoses across the board. And I kind of made a decision after a while because I noticed that if we were talking about something related to DBT that I felt related to my eating disorder, that if I brought it up, I kind of made the others, like the two staff members that were um, coordinating the meeting, uncomfortable in some ways because they didn't really seem to know how to answer the question that I was asking or what I was bringing up or how to respond to me. Um, but through doing this, I kind of noticed that another one of the clients in one of the meetings also would nod her head and would acknowledge what I was saying. And so for that other client, I kept bringing it up because I didn't care if it made the staff uncomfortable. I honestly didn't fucking care. They were there to help treat <laughs> our mental illness. 
And that was part of my right. mental illness. And so I would acknowledge, and my my therapist Pam, who I mentioned, I love to death. We we had a conversation one day where she goes, you know that I'm not an eating disorder specialist. And I said, I, I know that. I said, but my eating disorder plays a huge role in everything else at play. And so I said, but so I'm going to talk about my eating disorder and I'm going to bring things up. And I go, and if you have questions, I go, you can ask questions and you can use me as a learning like learning experience for you. I said, but I don't want this to be something that's off limits in our conversation. And that's how I took it in the mm-hmm. group was I was not going to let my eating disorder be off limits in a space because it made other people uncomfortable and it made staff members uncomfortable at that. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually still kind of keep in contact with this other group member. Um, and yeah, I just, I just loved that I could in some way offer kind of some community for her. I don't know. Uh, right. I, like I look fondly back on my time in that group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, really, really like what you said about, you know, I'm not going to let this be off topic um, or I don't care if it makes you uncomfortable, get the fuck over it. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and kind of like getting, for me, allowing myself to be angry or to like go against these things that felt off topic or shameful or whatever played a very significant role in finding recovery. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, kind of like segueing into this of, you know, if that was significant and finding a place of recovery or like what exactly, you know, was almost like your turning point, so to speak of, you know, getting out of treatment, not going back and kind of reaching a place where you can sustain this outpatient. Um, I think, I think for me, making the decision to go into treatment the second time was a big one. Um, it took a lot. Um, I actually, um, was nannying four kiddos at the time, part time. And, um, the nanny mom that I work for is, or was working for is in the mental health field herself. And she's, she's an incredible human being. And at the time they were planning on moving. And so I had kind of been pushing off treatment until they were going to move. And I was just going to go to treatment when it was kind of convenient kind of thing. And that March of 2019, I was in the living room and I remember vividly where I was in the living room and my nanny mom, she looked at me and we were talking about the kids and talking about things and talking about the move. And she looked at me and she goes, um, how, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm okay. And she's like, no, like, how are you doing? Are you still looking at going to treatment? And I said, yeah, well, you know, going to do it when you guys move, but I've got time. It, it'll, it, we'll, we'll get there. And she looked at me and she was like, Alex, if you need to go, you need to go. She goes, we'll be okay. She goes, I can hack it for a few weeks. She goes, but if you need to go get help, please go. And I I remember leaving that afternoon and I sat in my car outside their house and I called the Emily program. And wow. <laughs> then ironically enough, I had to go to the grocery store. And so <laughs> having the intake take way too long and I'm trying to do the intake and I'm on hold while going through the grocery store. <laughs> so that was, that was quite the experience. Oh but... <laughs> Um, oh yeah just all of the all of the stimuli all at once um and uh 
but I know for a fact that if I hadn't called them right after that conversation with her, I never would have, I or I, it would have taken even longer. And, and I, I've mm-hmm. seen her so many times, so many times over. And I think that that's what it takes for a lot of people is somebody outside of your friends, outside of your family, outside of a roommate, outside of somebody that's so intimately close with you to take somebody a little bit more distance to say, Hey, I see you, I love you, and I care about you, and you need help. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, obviously, I saved my own life, and we talk, nobody's damn as well as you save yourself in this one, but there are definitely those people that swoop in that are a huge part of me being able to save myself. Um, and mm-hmm. so I think that that was a huge part of going back um, and, it, and then I talked about making the decision of going into it with the idea of I'm treating an addiction. I'm treating my addiction to not right. and I'm treating my addiction to being empty. I had this obsession with feeling empty and not having anything. Mm-hmm. Of me. And I know I know for a fact that that goes back to me being a small child and um, the low rise genes. And I mean, I had 98. So like the low rise genes. And- <laughs> the flat bellies and the belly, the belly button rings and all of that, that I, I was, I grew up with that. And I, I thought to be beautiful and to have a beautiful woman's body, you have to have this flat, perfect stomach. Well, shocker, women have uteruses that take up space. Right. It's not going to happen uh-huh. for most of us. <laughs> Thank God. <high laughs> came back in the style. <laughs> oh my God. Like, right. Yes. Right. They better like never take those away from us. Like, I think I will never stop wearing but we should back. But <laughs> I mean, and so I believe that that feeling of being empty aided in having a flat stomach. And so I remember from a young age, I mean, I was probably what, seven, eight. And I would put a swimsuit on and I'd be going to the pool and I'd be like, well, I can't eat anything because I want, I want to have a, I don't want to, I don't want my belly to be big or like things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a child. And, and so I just decided that. I was done. I was done letting mm-hmm. this idea of what I thought had to be perfect to rule my life. That and I fucking love food. Like I right. I told my therapist when I first the first time I ever went back into treatment was I want to love food again. Like I grew up in a family that we mm-hmm. cook. My parents are both incredible cooks. I love to cook food. I even in my eating disorder was obsessed with looking at pictures and videos and watching people cook food because I, I love it. And then in, in treatment, we talk a lot about how food isn't just food and food doesn't just serve a purpose to fuel your body, but food serves so many communal aspects and societal aspects and bringing people together and offering a, um, a group experience and food is a way that you can show people that you love them. I think I personally think that one of the most intimate ways that I can show people that I love them is cooking food for them and feeding them. Um, and so mm-hmm. bringing that back into my life because I so dearly miss that. And then I think kind of what you touched on is then after treatment sticking with it was I got a glimpse of it and I didn't want to ever go back. Um, I think when you're in starvation mode, or you're in the grips of trauma. We were talking about the the body keeps the score. It can happen with this too. But you're just you're so caught up in what's going on in your mind that you just don't have any mental plasticity for any imagination. 
that you can't imagine mm-hmm. a life outside of where you are now. Um, and at that time, I was in an incredibly abusive relationship with a man that I had gone back to. And he was a huge part of what kept me in my eating disorder. Um, and I, I feel like if I was still with him, I would have gone back to my eating disorder. Um, and mm-hmm. that was a huge part of me staying out of treatment was getting rid of that relationship because I grew too big for him and not physically too big, but because I was no longer in starvation mode, my personality shone through and I was alive again and I'd talk with emotion and I'd have life in my voice. And I remember he'd hear me belly laugh from the other room and he'd come and he'd go, well, you always just laugh like that when you're going to show me something or when you think something's like funny that you want to show me. And I'm like, no, I laugh like that, but I think something's fucking hilarious because this is how I laugh. Like, well, that don't mean any subliminal message about you. And I remember those first belly laughs that I had when I first went back to treatment. I was like, oh, my God, this is what it's like to be alive. And I was mm-hmm. talking with my therapist about a day on um, Wednesday. And I actually remember vividly well Wednesday was going on thinking these are the types of days that I dreamed of what recovery looked like. And I was going skiing that day, um, the community, the ski hill in my area, I was offering $5 passes for residents. And I was able to eat my breakfast that day. And I packed up a whole bunch of snacks. And of course, we were skiing. So we had our fair share of alcoholic beverages, and which I know some people in treatment can struggle with. And um, in the past, I wouldn't have even bothered really packing anything for lunch. I would have just been like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I can kind of just skip it. But I was like, no, like, I know I'm going to be hungry. So I packed up my freaking MSR pocket rocket camp stove that I hadn't touched in two and a half years. And I brought out my mom's chicken <laughs> soup that she had made me that week. And I sure as hell tailgated my mama's chicken noodle soup in the parking lot of the ski hill. <laughs> and while everybody else had beer for lunch, I had cider, hard cider and soup. And I was just so proud of myself because this is something that like I would have never done, especially since I was the only one eating. That would have been huge for me. I would have never done that. And then afterwards, they were all going out to dinner, and I didn't necessarily have much money for dinner that night. But thank God, my my good friend Andy, who we were skiing with that day, he he offered to buy me dinner, and so we went out and we had burgers and fries and hung out. And it's just like this is this is what life is like. And sharing meals with friends, mm-hmm. and eating heated up soup with a camp stove at the ski hill, and just loving every minute of it and I told my therapist that today and I'm like it's days like that that make me never ever ever want to go back and so I don't know what your experience mm-hmm. that is kind of coming out of the fog coming out of starvation mode I don't know if you had experiences with maybe friendships that you outgrew when you have gone through these mm-hmm. phases um but I'd just be curious to hear about uh, kind of your answer to that question as well yeah um I think you know, for me, I was in, I was in survival mode for most of my life because mm-hmm. my trauma happened at such a young age. Um, you know, from around the age of four, I really think that just set me off into complete survival mode. Um, and, you know, I was always just operating like that, operating kind of dissociated, operating very anxiously. Um, And, you know, there were moments of joy and happiness and peace that would come, but 
at the core of it all, I was stuck. Um, and, you know, then that progressed through um, to an entire year um, and a half of just being then in crisis. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was in crisis all the time. It was then therapy. You know, I started therapy right at my crisis point and all of my appointments, all like everything was just trying to stabilize me. Um, you know, I was I was hospitalized three times for suicidal ideation in the span of a year um, and then went into PHP and IOP and outpatient. And it was it was just like finally getting a moment of quiet I remember at you know reaching the end mm -hmm. of IOP and things finally for the first time in my life that I could remember was this sense of calm just the sense of things being okay and I really didn't want to lose that and I knew that I was going to lose that if I didn't get help for my eating disorder um and that's you know, that's when I decided to really advocate for myself. And that's when I decided that, you know, no one was going to rescue me out of this one. And this was something I was going to have to actively choose to get help for because I didn't want to lose what I had gained from my other treatment days. I just, it was almost just like desperation. It was like once I had found that sense of hope and that Mm -hmm. moment of quiet it was like I cannot lose this um and you know I was just at that point I was so tired of my own bullshit I was done with it you know at that point you know I had been stabilized mm -hmm. so we could finally yeah. start getting to a place of actually working on what had led me to become in a crisis point in the first place and so you know at that point I knew what was going on you know I knew the healthy coping mechanisms. I knew the maladaptive ones and what they did for me um, and how they wouldn't help in the long run. And I just got sick of it. I got sick of my own bullshit. And I was like, okay, like I'm done. Um, and that doesn't mean then, you know, therapy and recovery and all of that went like so smoothly. And I was just this perfect patient. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I was finally done. I was done with the mask of acting like things were okay. Um, you know, I was just I was done with it all, and I think that's what really got my healing going. I can remember my last my last hospitalization, just completely breaking down in front of my treatment team, which is like not something I ever would have done in the past. Even in like my therapy appointments, all of that it was just. It was going through the motions. It was deciding what I thought was okay to talk about. It was deciding what I was going to heal from and what I wasn't going to exactly. talk about. And, you know, from the moment I would step foot in the hospital, I was already trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to get out of here? What do you know, I, I didn't stay in the Right, exactly. Because it was like, I shouldn't be here in the first place. Like, I fucked up. I shouldn't be here. I need to get out of here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it wasn't until that last one where, like, I just became too hopeless to not let it be seen. And the moment I let myself be seen, I think, was when this, you know, lasting healing took place. Letting people see the hurt and the hopelessness and the anger really sparked um, just this true, lasting 
healing and, you know, finally getting that moment of air. That's what it felt like, you know, just this moment of air. Like I was breathing for the first time in my 18 years of life that, you know, kind of this sense of like, okay, maybe, maybe things are going to be okay. And I don't want to lose that. Um, I love what you said yeah, about being so sick of your own bullshit. And yeah. how when you were, you decided what you wanted to talk about and you decided what you wanted to heal from. Um, and I was actually going to bring that up if you hadn't brought that up because I realized that, that I had been going to therapy since my junior year of high school, but I hadn't gotten anywhere because I just got really good at telling people what they wanted to hear. And I mean, and I'm mm-hmm. that regardless of things in life, but I got really good at it in therapy. And if you just tell therapists and treatment teams what you think you want them, what, what you think they want to hear and what's the easiest thing to talk about, you don't get anywhere with therapy. And I learned that mm-hmm. kind of the same way that, yeah, I, w- I was done letting myself like basically like cheat myself out of treatment kind of thing because I was paying to be there. So it was up to me to decide whether I was actually going to use that time or not. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean and it it was terrifying um to go against what, you know, this internal narrative of shame was telling me. Um but learning to actually defy that and sit in the panic that comes when you're about to say something you're so ashamed of um, yeah. has been incredibly crucial um, in my healing journey, um, and understanding that nobody, nobody heals in silence. Um, and so if I wasn't talking about it, I wasn't going to heal from it. Um, and, you know, I think for me personally, because I'm a very stubborn person, I had to reach that breaking point. I had to get tired of my own bullshit to finally help myself. Absolutely. And I would just want to like encourage anybody that's listening that if you if you feel like you're doing what like Julie and I are talking about that we had the tendency to do, um, talk to your therapist about it. Like, and that's like we're talking about probably going to be absolutely terrifying, but just talk to them about it. And um, like at least with eating disorder treatment, we would have um, different topics or different worksheets or different things that would get brought up. But where I always really struggled was when I'd have just an hour with a therapist in front of me and nothing mm-hmm. to really talk about besides my past two weeks. Well, my past two weeks really don't fucking matter in the grand scheme of things. My past two weeks were fine. I could sit and I can recap them for you and we can talk about the couple things that I was upset about. But now I'm to the point where like I just have coping mechanisms and skills that I know how to do and use. And so I just do that. And so it was just like, well, that's my week recap. Here we go. And so I brought up to her, I said, you know, I really want to in 2021 be an active participant in my therapy again, and not just a bystander. And so that was when I asked her if she would be willing to go through that book with me, The Body Keeps the Score. But I mean, if if you have a book that you're wanting to go through with your therapist, chances are they probably have already read it. Um, I was lucky enough to already be um, established with a trauma um, a ther- a therapist that specializes in trauma. But um, or if you want your therapist to come to your sessions with worksheets or if you want your therapist to maybe guide the sessions more, mm-hmm. they work for you. 
you hired them, you can right. fire them and you can ask from them what you want. And I learned that and therapy got exponentially better. I don't know what your experience is with. Yeah. Therapy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of the times we slip into feeling like, you know, we're there to please our therapist. And that's like, absolutely not like why we're there like like you said like no like they they work for us um, and they want to help us they should if your therapist doesn't want to help you like fire them immediately and possibly report them to whatever board their licensure is under (laughs) but if you have a good therapist they want to be there for you and they want to hear what's helpful and what's not helpful um and you know I learned to start asking for that um actually when I saw my now my former EMDR therapist because I finished EMDR but the first time I saw her and she was asking you know like tell me a little bit about yourself what's helpful what isn't helpful and I told her I need you to call me out on my bullshit um and you know back when I was in PHP when we would be in process group um and be doing introductions for the day and checking in you know I'd let them know if I wanted to talk because like later in the group Because I knew I would need someone to hold me accountable for that or else I wasn't going to do that. So, you know, I'd Mm -hmm. give my introduction, I'd give my hope for my gratitude for the day. I'd say, you know, the feelings that I was feeling. And then I'd say, and I want to talk today. And so the group therapist would then know, like, okay, like we need to circle back to her or else she's not, she's not going to say anything. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And also like something else that I found really helpful, like if you're someone who is like, have a hard time with harder conversations or not necessarily, it's not confrontation in therapy, but, you know, bringing that type of stuff up for me with things that I felt really anxious about or didn't know exactly how to word or whatever. I just, I'd write a letter to my therapist and give it to her at the beginning of session. If it was something that felt too hard to speak out loud, I'd give it to her so at least she knew and she knew that this was something we could work on getting to a place where I could talk about it out loud. I really like um, that idea. So, yeah. Yeah, I think the other thing about therapy I think a lot of people don't know too is that if you are somebody that's considering getting into therapy, no matter if that's eating disorder therapy, trauma therapy, just general CBT therapy, Um, if you going into that, I mean, that's a relationship that you're going to have with that person. And that needs to be somebody that you're going to drive with, that you're going to get along with, that you're going to kind of be able to like replicate their energy and that they're going to be able to deal with yours. Um, and I know I've been through some really, really great relationships with therapists. I've been through some relationships with therapists where I wish I could like add them on Facebook now, but I've also been on ones where it wasn't so great and it wasn't a good fit. Um, And one thing that I have Mm -hmm. learned about um, actually through a Nita speaker um, a few years ago is that uh, you can actually most times with most therapists call and ask for a consultation. And that may be anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes. And I know some places offer them for free and some places do charge. But you can have a chance to go to that therapist and say, hey, these are the things I'm seeing you for. These are the things that I'm expecting of you. These are the things that I want to work on. And I, you can get a chance to talk to them and get a sense for who they are and then decide going forward if there are something that you'd like to pursue treatment with. Um, and I mean, mm-hmm. luckily, I've been seeing Pam now for a few years, but I think that that would have absolutely changed how I found a therapist and the idea that you could actually shop for a therapist. Like, that's awesome. Right, right. 
Yes. And like, you know, like if you're, if you're a couple sessions in with a therapist and you don't feel that connection, if you don't feel that click, like you're allowed to stop seeing them. You don't have to like stick it out or wait to see if it gets better. Like and you're allowed to trust, like trust your intuition and be like, eh, no, nope, I'm not going to reschedule. Because I think sometimes if you continue seeing that therapist, that's not a good fit. Then the longer that you stay, it's, I mean, almost like a bad relationship. Like, then the longer that mm-hmm. you stay, then you're like, well, now I'm so invested and now I'm in it for this long and they already know all of this. So I just don't really feel like starting over. And so if you're just a couple sessions in and you get that chance to just kind of like cut it, cut it off, then move on, do it. Like, well, don't wait for a shitty breakup. Like, just do it now. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, you're not responsible for a therapist's feelings ever 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 so I know like sometimes it can feel like you'll feel really guilty or like I don't I feel like I should stay or I don't want to like hurt their feelings or whatever they will be completely fine um and if they're not fine they shouldn't be a therapist and they have some shit to work through like it's your therapist's emotions are not your responsibility um yeah and I feel like just all of this has a very common theme of like you're allowed um and I really hope you do claim authority over your healing journey um you know Alex you talked about how you told your therapist like I want to be an active participant in therapy again um and I've said basically the same thing to my therapist before of even just an active participant in my own life um Mm -hmm. and you know I just really want to empower anyone who's listening um to really fight to be active in your own healing you know to advocate for yourself to question things when they don't feel right um because that's what you deserve and ultimately that's what's gonna create sustainable and lasting healing absolutely and I know one thing that we were going to touch on too and had kind of touched on is just the overall access to treatment um and one thing that I did want to just kind of like put out there um, because I know I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you guys today um, if, it, if I hadn't had multiple therapists suggest this to me. Um, but um, an, a one way that helped me incredibly access treatment was um, being able to get on state insurance. Um, and I didn't know that you could have secondary insurance. Um, you could actually have up to three mm-hmm. forms of insurance. Um, and so I live in the state of Minnesota, and luckily we have a pretty incredible Um, state insurance program that I was able to get in with but I mean my family wouldn't have been able to financially afford what I was going through and the treatment that I was receiving Uh, I mean I wouldn't be able to afford it now either and um, I know that there's quite a few people that qualify for that even if they don't know and I don't know about many other states outside of Minnesota Um, but I also know that many communities I know my community has some community-based clinics um, that typically can work off of a sliding scale. I know many facilities can work off of a sliding scale depending on where you're at financially. And I know that that also comes from a huge sense of privilege as well, that like you would even have the extra money to even be able to consider a sliding scale. But again, it's, it's um, ask the question. Ask the question. Ask for the resources. Right. Um, call yep. your uh, call. I mean, I know like even the National Suicide Prevention Hotlines, they can connect you to local resources that can get you connected to other things. 
but I mean, there are so many community resources out there as well. Um, and I just, yeah, um, I know, um, Alliance for Eating Disorders, they, um, they actually offer, and right now, like, it's completely virtual because of COVID, so it doesn't even matter, like, what state you live in, I don't think, but they offer, um, free support groups led by eating disorder therapists, um, and, you know, there's, um, Project HEAL offers scholarships, um, so, like Alex said, like, keep asking, keep advocating, um, let yourself get fucking angry about the injustice of it and how hard it is to find treatment and how it's not fair to you. You know, when you let yourself get angry, you're showing yourself that you care about yourself. Um, and that is really, really important. Um, and actually I think like, that's a really great note, um, to end on. Um, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add quickly, Alex. I was going to add one more thing quickly was that um, one more thing yeah. too about finances is that I know in my uh, case that when I was actually in treatment um, with the Emily program, they have a foundation uh, called Withall now that offers grants to clients that are currently in treatment. Um, these grants are not allowed to be given back or be, they're not allowed to be used to pay for treatment costs because that would essentially be paying their program back. However, this $500 can be used to pay for rent. It can be used to pay for groceries. It can be used to pay for gas mm. from treatment, um, which that's right. another thing. You can get gas reimbursement from treatment or from uh, insurances many times as well if you're driving really far distance to and from treatment. Um, I know I had many people that I was with that drove 50 minutes to and from treatment, um, but yeah, look mm -hmm. into grants, look into, I mean, there's so many options available as well, even once you do get into Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when nobody's damsel posts us on Instagram, we'll create in the bio or maybe in the comments, it might not fit in the bio, we'll, um, create a little list of some of the things we talked about here, mm -hmm. um, some of these organizations and stuff. Um, so you guys can like see and check them out. Um, for yourselves but yeah thank you so much Alex for thank coming on and talking with me and thanks to Ellie for introducing us and bringing us on here um, and giving us the space to just chat about our experiences um, Nobody's Damsel releases new episodes on Friday uh, so make sure you guys tune in um, and who knows maybe I'll be back on here again one day Alex probably will too I would love um, to be back. So, yeah <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks. Have a great day.